Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Um, I don't mind telling you that this has been a, a very challenging and difficult week uh, in many, many respects. But, but God has gotten us here to this point for a reason. You're here. I'm here. God has a word he wants to share. And I hope you will listen, not just with your ears, but with your heart. Been thinking a lot this week about um, the lost. And uh, any, any of you ever been lost somewhere, maybe in the woods, driving? Yeah, and you had to, you had to ask somebody, you know, where are you at and how do you get out of there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of us have found ourselves in situations where we needed to be rescued. There's hardly a day that goes by that you can't find a story somewhere in the news about somebody being rescued from some kind of disaster. I opened my phone up the other day and I read a story, it was Tuesday, that came out of Pakistan where a gondola that had been taking eight people up this mountain to go to a school became stuck when a cable broke and it left them stranded. You probably saw that. It was deemed so serious uh, that uh, some Army Special Forces personnel were called in because it was considered to be an extremely dangerous and risky rescue mission. Uh, the picture I saw on my phone showed a, a gondola barely hanging up in the air some 900 feet above the ground on a single cable. It appears that the only way to be able to rescue them was to bring in this uh, Special Forces helicopter and, 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 and you know, get up over the cable, over the gondola, and, and drop a line down to be able to rescue these people. As of Tuesday, only two of them had been rescued uh, before nightfall set in, and the other five children and one teacher was left to endure a very frightening and uh, difficult night. Then on Wednesday morning, the rescue efforts resumed, and, and praise God, all eight were successfully rescued uh, from a long and frightening ordeal. Every day, every day, more and more people find themselves needing to be rescued. And it is a beautiful thing when they can go in and, and find them and rescue them and save them and bring them out and spare their life. But search and rescue missions are not always successful. They don't always work. Just look at what's been going on in Hawaii on the island of Maui. I mean, that fire devastated the island, killed so many people. Initially, there were some 2,000 people that were feared missing and presumed to be dead from the fires. But that number has dropped a, a great deal. A lot of people have been located, found safe, but so far, 115 people have been reported to have died in the wildfires. And they, they say there are more than 400 people that are still being reported as missing and unable to be found. Uh, those fires are considered to be uh, the deadliest fires in U.S. history, uh, in current history. Search and recovery teams continue to check the charred remains um, in buildings and cars in the aftermath of that deadly fire. Um, fires don't leave a whole lot of hope for search and rescue. Usually it's just search and recovery even if you can recover. They're having a hard time identifying who people are because there's no fingerprints and there's, there's no way to do that. Well, this morning, I, I want to draw our attention to another kind of search and rescue mission. 
It's what Acts chapter 17 is all about. Uh, you're going to find that Paul and his team, as they went in to different places, were not trying to rescue people stranded from a gondola, not even from a fire. No, uh, the people that Paul was trying to rescue didn't even know that they were in trouble. Most of them were living life just like you and me. Uh, it was just another day in paradise. Uh, life was normal for the most part, at least on the surface. Paul and his team were searching for, for the people that they were searching for were all alive. They were all alive. And uh, yet they desperately needed to be rescued. Why? Because, and, and, and I want you to hear me very clearly, because they were all spiritual zombies. You know, we hear a lot about zombies today, don't we? Uh, there's a lot of games. I, whenever I see something on TV that had zombie in it, I just turn it right on to the next and you keep going. But zombies do exist, but they're not existing the way that we think they are. Uh, there, there are people who are walking dead. You, you, you walk around them all the time. They were the people that Paul and uh, his team were trying to reach were, were spiritually dead. The people living in three different major cities and, and everywhere in between. And, and chapter 17 is all about Paul's second missionary journey that some call it. Uh, I called it a search and rescue mission that took place uh, uh, beginning there in the capital city of Macedonia, which was at the time Thessalonica. From there they moved to Berea. And eventually they went on uh, to a place called Athens, which is located in modern-day Greece. Uh, the number of lost people in that area was astronomical. It was overwhelming. Uh, their lostness was not the result of a devastating fire, but it was the result of their own personal sin. Think about that. Spiritual lostness abounded in that day, in pandemic proportion. It still does. It still does, and we don't recognize that. We don't, we don't stop and think about people being spiritual zombies. Lost souls were everywhere Paul went, and my friends, they're still out there. You're going to find them everywhere you go. You drove by hundreds, maybe even thousands this morning just to get to church. And, and if we're really honest and we get down to the nitty-gritty, you may even have some living in your own house. Right in your own home with you. John MacArthur wrote that the world is not what it was when God created it. The fall of man and God's resultant curse on the earth and its environment toppled it from its spiritual axis. Fallen man is now trapped in an evil world system that is hostile to God. Ours is truly a world turned upside down. There is a mass movement, friends, by global-minded people, and I would call them the deceived, who want you to believe that we're on the brink of destroying our world, our earth. They say that climate change is going to destroy the earth if we don't make some major drastic changes in the way we live life. They also want us to believe that global warming is man's doing and that we have to change everything to save our world. We have to get rid of this and get rid of that. We even got to get rid of the ceiling fans. Listen, I do believe in global warming. It's a little warmer than it used to be, right? I would even agree that man isn't doing his best job of taking care of the home that God gave us to live on. 
And I would also, I also believe that, that one day the planet that we live on is going to be destroyed. But guess what? Man's not going to do it. God is. God said he would destroy this planet. So if you think you're going to get live here forever, you better stop and think about that. Listen, the universe that we know uh, as it is right now will not remain the same way forever. Neither is this earth, but human beings are not going to destroy it. You say, Brother Randy, why are you even bringing that up, and how do you know that to be true? Well, let, let me just give you some spiritual common sense here this morning, okay? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. I, I, I know that because Jesus promised to return to this planet one day. Did he not? Y'all remember that? He said that many times. He came the first time, but he said, I'm coming again. Well, just stop and think about it. If he's coming back to earth, there's got to be earth for him to come to, right? Hello? Listen to what John wrote in Revelation 19. God gave John this vision. He said, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, and the one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True. You know who that is. For he judges fairly and then goes to war. Not in the heavens, but on earth. His eyes were bright like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And the name was written, a name was written on him, and only he knew what it meant. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Not, not his blood, but blood from previous battles. Read scripture, you'll find that out. And his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in pure white linen, followed him on white horses. <laughs> That's us. I like that. Verse 15 says, From his mouth came a sharp sword, and with it he struck down the nations, the nations of this planet. He ruled them with an iron rod, and he trod the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. On his robe and thigh were written this title, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. One day Jesus is coming back. And I think it's a whole lot closer than we think it is. He's also coming to take the earth back. Hang on to that. And establish his sovereign rule over all of it. Literally. Literally. The psalmist wrote. Why do the nations rage? Think about that. Why do they think. Why do they compete for power? Why does everybody want to be number one in the world? Why do people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And they say, they cry out, let us break their chains and free ourselves from this slavery. But notice verse 4. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. God just laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in uh, anger he rebukes them terrifying them with his fierce fury for the Lord declares I have placed my chosen king on the throne of Jerusalem my holy city that hadn't happened yet but it's going to the king proclaims the Lord's decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have become your father only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance the ends of the earth as your possession you will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, 
Act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Folks, Jesus one day will physically rule from Jerusalem. I look forward to that. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been to Jerusalem. I walked around in that city. It's an amazing city. But I can't imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus gets there. It's going to be awesome. During that time, the universal curse that we uh, suffer from today is going to be lifted. And the earth will be restored to something of its original character. Then after a thousand year millennial reign of Christ on earth, the whole universe will be uncreated. It once was created, it's going to be uncreated. How do you know that? Well, look at what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3. And God has commanded, command, as Ronnie said a while ago, not a suggestion, but a command. God has commanded that the heavens and the earth will be consumed by fire on the day of judgment when ungodly people will perish. Folks, the fires of Maui have nothing in comparison to the day of destruction. They don't even come close. There is no comparison. Notice how Peter goes on in his writing. He said, but you must not forget, dear friends, that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, God is not restrained or limited by time. He produced time for us and one day he's going to do away with it. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. Maybe it's one of you. I don't know. You ever thought about who the last person to be saved is going to be? There is somebody out there whose name is written. They will be the last one saved, and then all this is over. Hello? He says he does not want anyone to perish. Given more time for everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come. It will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Somebody trying to break into your house when you don't, you don't have any idea they're coming. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and everything in them will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be exposed to judgment. Notice verse 11, since everything around us is going to melt away, what holy, godly lives you should be living. Folks, that is a profound statement that you certainly should consider. John goes on to write in Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Gone! And Ronnie, I'm sorry, but it says, And the sea was gone also. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from, from God out of heaven like a beautiful bride prepared for a husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. We can see him at that point. What a day that's going to be. He will remove all their sorrows and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. For the old world and its evils are gone forever. I'm not going to hurt on the other side. Praise God. Not going to get sick. Not going to have to call the doctors. No more, no more crying, no more dying. 
said in verse 5, And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. And then he said to me, Write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Don't believe the world. Believe God. Friends, there's a whole lot of changes coming our way. And God has some really big plans for our eternity. But listen, that doesn't mean that God is just standing idly by until then. We sometimes think God's kicked it in neutral. No. No, our God has been busy in the past, and he's busy right now executing his, his plan to search out and rescue as many lost souls as will turn and come to him. If, if you don't believe me, just read the Bible. Just open it up, and you'll find that throughout redemptive history, God has sent forth his people, his messengers, to proclaim the light of truth to a lost and sin-darkened world. He sent men like Jeremiah and Elijah and, and Isaiah and Daniel and, and Amos and a, and a whole lot of others to shake up complacent sinners and to challenge apathetic attitudes. And when you move out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, you find men like Peter and, and John and the Apostle Paul who literally turned their world upside down everywhere they went when they spoke God's truth. In fact, Scripture records that, that in every city that Paul visited, every city that he went to, his teaching caused disturbances. He was always making somebody uncomfortable, somebody uneasy. He even made a lot of people mad with what he preached. In Acts 17, if you, you look at that, it opens up with Paul having just left Philippi because he angered the pagan Greeks who lived there. Well, things happened pretty much the same way when he got to Thessalonica. Look with me in Acts chapter 17, verse 4. He, he goes to the synagogue and he preaches Jesus and some who listened were persuaded and became converts, including a large number of godly Greek men and also many important women of the city. So there was a harvest of souls that day. But, it says, the Jewish leaders were jealous. So they gathered some worthless fellows, some bums from the street, uh, to form a mob and, and to start a riot. And they attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. This was going to be mob rule. They probably would have stoned them to death if they could have found them. But not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Now Paul, they said, they shouted, Paul and Silas have turned the rest of the world upside down and now they're here disturbing our city. And, and Jason has let them into his home. And they're all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king. Somebody called Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the, the city officials, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. And, and it just, it, I mean, the tension, you could have cut it with a knife. It was so bad that Paul was forced to leave yet again. And you pick that up in verse 10. It said that night, the very, the, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas on to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went to the synagogue. It was a common thing for Paul to go first to his own people to preach Jesus. And it says the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. 
and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day, the Old Testament scriptures, to check up on Paul and Silas to see if they were really teaching the truth. And as a result, many Jews believed. Many became Messianic Christians, Messianic believers, believing in Jesus, as did some of the prominent Greek women and many men. But, it says, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and they stirred up trouble. So, the believers there in Berea acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast. They were putting him in a place where he could catch a ship somewhere else. And it says, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him to Athens, and then they returned to Berea with a message for Silas and Timothy to hurry up and join him there in Athens. Well, uh, th this is where I want us to focus our attention this morning. And there's a very good reason for us to do that, my friends. And, and, and here's kind of the reason. This is kind of the launching pad for, for what I believe this message is trying to say to us this morning. You know, it's been said that in this age of liberalism, are we there? <laughs> yeah. In this age of liberalism, neo-orthodoxy neo and pragmatism and psychology and emotionalism and experientialism and, and man-centered theology, the church desperately needs a proper perspective of God. Would you agree with me on that? We need to understand God. Well, guess what? We're not the only one. So does the world. We have to if the world is going to. We have to. And it is our great task to help the world know that God exists and understand who he is. John MacArthur wrote to the unbelieving world, which is ripe with skepticism and supernaturalism and rationalism and mysticism and the hopeless despair each produces, the Christian... That you and me offers the only message of hope. Go to all the religions of the world and you'll find ours is the only one that produces hope. Our world desperately needs to understand that the human race is not a cosmic accident. Hello? That's what they're teaching our kids. We need to teach them the truth. You are not a personal being trapped in an impersonal universe. The world needs to know that there's a real God who is both the creator of the universe and the ruler of the universe. The city of Athens desperately needed to know that. And that was, God, that was Paul's goal when he went there. And it should be our goal every time we come in contact with lostness in this world. I went into a, a grocery store the other day and uh, I encountered a butcher. And he was standing there. And he didn't look right. And, and I spoke to him and I said to him, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not. He said, I've only been back to work a couple of weeks. And he said, I'm having a hard time doing my job. And I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I, he said, I've had some trouble in my family. There were so many people at the counter that I didn't have an opportunity to speak to him. It just wasn't an occasion for doing that. There was this lady that just kind of stepped in front of me and she went to tell him that she needed this kind of meat and that kind of meat and all that. 
So, so I went and hunted Joyce down, and I, I, I got a pen from her, and I wrote my name and, and telephone number, and I said, you know, if you'll call me, I'll be glad to talk to you. I haven't heard from Nicholas, okay? But I've been praying for Nicholas. That's all I can do at this point. But I engaged him in what little activity I could that day, and that is what God wants us to do. Look with me at Acts, 16, Acts 17, verse 16. It said, when Paul was waiting for them, waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him there in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. If you know anything about Athens, you know that it was the philosophical center of the ancient world. That was the epicenter. And it was also the home of the world's most famous university. And it was... Uh, also a major religious center where almost every god that man bowed a knee to could be worshipped. The pagan Greek writer uh, Petronius, I get that right, Petronius, he, he sarcastically wrote that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man. All of their public buildings were dedicated to some kind of pagan god. And there were statues of these gods scattered all over the city. And that, 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 you know, that's what Paul saw when he entered the city. And he was deeply troubled by the depth of spiritual lostness. Paul quickly saw in Athens um, a city full of lost people. Lost men and women and boys and girls doomed and to die and head into eternity without Christ. Let me ask you something. What, what do you think of when you look at America? Some of you remember Eddie Centerfit. He and Elaine were here with us early on in the, the conception and birth of our church. And I happened to be with Eddie one, one night up in Richmond at the Richmond Speedway. And it was some kind of big anniversary for Chevrolet or something. And so they, they were putting on and hosting the, the race that night. And we were seated with about 135,000 people. Me and Eddie in the middle of all that. And I got to looking and got to thinking, I wonder how many would be left if Jesus were to come back in the middle of this race and rapture the church. And from what I was seeing, I, I concluded that if Eddie and I got snatched out of there, they wouldn't even know we were gone. Because the vast majority of that crowd would have been left. That's the way the world is. There's more lostness than we think there is. All Paul saw in Athens was lostness everywhere. But instead of being discouraged and overwhelmed, Paul channeled his emotion into action. And he, and he did what he always did everywhere he went some, when he went somewhere new. Paul went fishing. He was fishing for souls. Paul knew where to go to fish for lost souls. We're going to read some scripture about that in just a minute, but I, I want to just prep you for that and, and get you to make note of the fact that, that Paul was intentional in everything he did. He got up in the morning thinking about where he could encounter a lost soul. He went looking for them. He was also attentive. He was always looking to see who God was going to put in his path. He looked with spiritual eyes. He was also engaging. He had no problem whatsoever having a spiritual conversation with anyone 
And more than anything, Paul was flexible slash fluid. You see, he did whatever it took, wherever he was, to reach a lost person or maybe even a new people group. He went with the flow. He, he did what he had to do. You know, saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? Well, no. You know, wherever he went, he had to do what he had to do, and he did what he had to do to reach lost people. In Acts chapter 17, and there in verse 17, it says, in Athens, he, he went to the synagogue. That, again, that was his number one place that he fished. He went to the synagogue to debate with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public squares to all who happened to be there. When they threw him out of the synagogue, because they didn't want to hear about Jesus anymore, he went into the marketplace. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, this babbler has picked up some strange idea. Others said, well, no, he's just pushing some foreign religion. And then they took him to the council of philosophers, there at the Areopagus, the center where the philosophers would gather. And they said, come and tell us more about this new religion. You are saying some rather strange, startling things and and we want to know more. We want to know what it's all about. But notice verse 21. This is kind of Luke's commentary on what the situation was. He said, it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. In other words... They wanted to hear what Paul had to say, but they really had no genuine interest in the gospel. Some things never change, right? There will always be people who will love to debate theology and religion and scripture and spirituality who will never ever commit themselves to Jesus Christ. They, they want to know about all the new religions that are out there. They're not interested in the real one. They want to talk about the new ones or the ones that kind of died out in the past. They're interested in those, those writings that weren't canonized into Scripture or all the latest philosophical ideas that are floating around out there. That's what they're interested in. But the real question is, and we should address this, what does God want? What does God want? I can tell you what He wants. God wants everybody to know Him personally. Not just with your head, but with your heart. There are a lot of people out there that have got a lot of ideas about God in their head, but it never does anything to change their heart. And they're in a, they're in a fix. God wants us to know him personally. And that's what Paul wanted. Look at verse 22. Kind of get your mind in the, the moment here. Paul is standing before these council, this council of philosophers, before the council, and he addressed them with these words. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it. Paul was very attentive. It said, to an unknown God. Do you see that? There's a shrine there where they're worshiping the unknown God. 
they, they had names for all their other gods, but they were covering all their bases, and they put one out there that said to an ungod, unknown God. In other words, if there's another God out there, we're worshiping him as well. I met a senior chief that was like that one time, and he, and he said to me after we had a conversation about Jesus, he said, look, preacher, I've been around the world, and, and, and I worship all the gods that are out there. That way I'm bound to get one of them right. I said, you're in trouble, brother. You're in trouble. Paul said to them, you've got this shrine to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. My friends, can I ask you this question? Do you know who your God is? Do you? Everybody has a God. Everybody has a God. Everybody in some way worships their God. But do you know who and what your God is? You need to ask yourself that question. You need to answer that question. Is yours God the unknown God? Paul quickly noted from all the different idols and the shrines in the city that the people of Athens were very religious people. Very religious you see, Athens was a hub of religious activity where virtually every deity known to man could be worshipped. But here was the problem. They were worshipping false gods. They were worshipping a bunch of man-made gods, idols and shrines. So Paul understood from his spiritual perspective that Athens was a city full of lost people. They were all doomed to an eternity without Christ because of their rampant pagan idolatry. You go, well, what in the world does that have to do with us? We don't have idols. We don't have a bunch of shrines around. Really? What do you think Paul would have to say about America? If you could transport Paul to today and just let him walk around our streets, what do you think Paul would say about America? Would he say America is not the Christian nation you think it is? I think he would. Would he say we are for the most part a pagan nation with a sprinkling of a few Christians living here? I think he would. Does, does that bother you? It should. I think he would say that, that we are a very religious people, just like the Athenians were. You see, in America, every deity known to man is worshipped. Hello? Am I right? Mm-hmm. You can worship every deity in this world, in this country. You can find a church, a shrine, a synagogue, whatever you want to call it. You can find one to every God in the world. Webster said religion can be the worship of any object, object of conscious, conscientious regard and pursuit. Worship can be the, or, or, or religion can be the worship of any object of conscientious regard and pursuit. So it can be an altar, it can be a shrine, it can be anything we possess or anything that is endeared to our heart. 
So your God is in fact whatever you replace the real God with. If you don't want to worship the real God, you'll find another God. God created us to be creatures of worship. We will worship something. You always do. You always will. That is the way we have been programmed. If you want to know what your God is or who your God is, just evaluate where you spend the majority of your time and your talent and your treasure. You see, your God, whatever or whoever it is, holds your attention and your allegiance. You focus on them. Friends, you can be religious and still have no relationship with God. That's a fact. It's what Scripture is bearing out. The people of Athens were, but they had no idea who God was. The Athenians were supernaturalists. They believed in supernatural powers that intervened in the, the course of natural law. They at least acknowledged the existence of someone. I heard it this week. You know, maybe they called him the man upstairs. I cringe when I hear that. Maybe they referred to him as a, a higher power. But they believed that somebody existed beyond their ability to understand who had made all the things that they saw and enjoyed. So hearing that and seeing that, Paul took advantage of the opportunity to introduce them to the creator God who could be known. Look with me at verse 24. Kind of again, focus on what we're looking at here. Paul is standing before this group of philosophers. He's talking about the unknown God. And he said of him, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples or shrines. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no need. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need there is. From one man, this God that I'm talking to you about, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand which should rise and which should fall, and he determined their boundaries. Notice verse 27. His purpose, his plan, his intent. And all of this was that the nations should seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live, we move, we exist. As one of your own poets says, we are His offspring. In other words, we are His creation. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's former ignorance about these things, but now he commands everyone everywhere to turn away from idols and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world. That's what we talked about earlier. He set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus, right? He's talking about Jesus to a bunch of philosophers, people who ruled and governed that world. 
as you can see, Paul stepped into this opportunity and he preached about this unknown God who made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. He boldly engaged the people of his day with the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, what God did for us through his son. And this is what Paul wanted them to know. Three things I point your attention to. First and foremost, he wanted them to know that this creator God was clearly revealed, had clearly revealed himself to us is much closer than we realize. Do you understand that? you understand you're standing in the presence of God? God is omnipotent. He is everywhere. The only place God is not is in hell. Mm, that's a whole nother sermon. God is everywhere. Idols can only be in one place. You put them on, you know, you park them in your driveway or you put them on your shelf or whatever you do with them. They can only be in one place. They can't move. You have to do whatever you're going to do with them. But God is in all places at all times. And even more than that, and this is the most important thing, God is only a prayer away. Only a prayer away. I love what Paul wrote in Romans 10, 13. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. That's all you got to do. If you, want, if you want to experience him, call on him. Call on him. The second thing Paul wanted us to understand is that the creator God not only made us, but he wants a relationship with each of us. The beautiful thing that I love about God, and I'm so thankful that I, I saw this a long time ago, is that God doesn't wait, up, wait for us to come to him. He goes looking for us. And if you found God, it's only because God first found you. That's truth. God is so serious about this that he seeks us out. He takes the initiative to find us in our lostness. Verse 27 says, his purpose, his idea, his plan, his intent. His initiative was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. I, I love the fact that God is findable. He's findable. You can find him. You can know him. He's not a, a, you know, a speechless idol that sits on a shelf. God wants to engage you with a relationship. And, and here's the beautiful thing. When we are willing to open up our hearts to him, that is when we find him. When we open up our hearts, that is when we find his forgiveness. That is when we find his mercy. That is when we find his redeeming grace. That is when we find joy and peace and, and purpose that the world can't give us. That, you know, that's what we're missing in this world. And we find it in him when we open up our hearts. Here's a spiritual truth for you. God wants to find us. He wants to rescue us. And we can find God. We can know him. Please understand that. There, there's one more thing that we don't need to overlook that, that I think is predominant in what Paul is trying to teach here. And, and that is this. Paul's teaching about the amazing creator God reminds us that we can and we should join him in this ultimate search and rescue mission. That, that's what we, we prayed about earlier for sure. You know, that's, that's what we, we prayed about for our church. That's what that song, Rescue the, uh, the Perishing, is about. That's why we named our church Harvest, a harvest of souls. 
I, I, I said to someone on the phone this week who uh, was, was in a difficult situation, and that person said to me, it is not my job to rescue. It is not my job to, to, to pass on grace to somebody. I said, you're wrong. You're wrong. If you're a Christian, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled from our lostness. And it is our responsibility to go and rescue those who are dying and going to hell. There's an old saying that the act of evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You think about that. That's what evangelism is all about. You telling somebody else who doesn't know Jesus what you know about Jesus. And if you, know, if you claim to know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, you have a story to tell. And there are people who need to hear your story. Your story may be the only story that will help them to come to know Christ. But if you're silent, they miss out. They miss out. Friends, will you go and share what you found out about Jesus? Will you do that? Every day you have an opportunity. All you got to do is open up your eyes, your spiritual eyes, and look. There's lostness all around you. Everywhere you go, you will encounter that. Will you commit yourself to praying for the others that, that the Lord is seeking to save? Will you do that? Pray for them. And will you commit yourself to being a part of God's search and rescue team? Oh, Bill didn't know I was going to preach this. But Bill's going to be telling you in the next couple of weeks, we're, we're fixing to kick off another semester of faith training. We're, we're going to give you an opportunity to, to be trained in how to go share your faith, how to share Christ with lost people. I, I told some parents the other day that you are the primary people responsible for helping your kids to know, to know Christ. The church, we, we assist you in that. But if you don't know how to tell your kids to know about Jesus, they're going to die and go to hell most likely. Our world's not going to tell them how to find Jesus, right? We got to do that. Who, who do you know this morning that needs to be rescued? Can you think of a name? Can you think of a person? I, I guarantee you if I gave you a three-by-five card, you probably could fill it up with names front and back of people who need to know Christ. When are you going to start praying for them? When are you going to start taking advantage of the opportunities that you have to tell them about the Jesus you know? When are you going to do that? We all know people who need to be rescued. Guess what? You may need to be rescued. You may need to come from where you are and find Jesus. When are you going to do that? You know me well enough to know that every Sunday I'm going to try to preach an evangelistic message. And we're going to give you an opportunity to accept Christ. Some of you come in here week after week after week. You come in lost and you leave lost. When's that going to change? It needs to change. Why? Because you don't know when your last day is going to be. Some of you uh, wonder where the Albers family is today. Ronnie didn't say anything. I, I, I expect he might later. But Rachel and them are having a funeral today for her sister who was killed in a car accident Monday morning going to school to teach. 
got hit in the intersection, killed her instantly. Do you think she knew that that was going to happen when she got up that morning? Absolutely not. You don't either. You don't know when your last moment or last breath or last heartbeat is going to be. If you're breathing, if your heart's beating, if you're in this moment, you can change your destiny by simply trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When are you going to do that? Will you do that today? Please?